0: This is about the Poetry Blitz. Thank you for listening.
1: I'm Shakti, and um, the poem that I looked at for this project was The Pulley by George Herbert. Um, this poem was p- penned by George Herbert in the early 17th century. He was a poet who frequently wrote about lifelong dedication to faith and religious deference. And in his poetry, he often used vivid imagery and conceit. So to start us off, does anyone have anything that they wanted to talk about specifically in this poem? Okay. Um, well, I guess we could start by talking about the structure. Um, So when I was reading this poem, I took note of a few things. Uh, It follows an ABABA rhyme scheme. and it has five lines per stanza and four stanzas, and um, the meter and the syllable structure are both irregular and something notable about it that uh, I thought was interesting is there's a lot of dialogue throughout uh, the poem. Uh, and I thought maybe the unconventional meter and syllable structure were almost conversational in the way that they were presented, which makes sense because the poem does follow God's thought processes in granting man divine virtues um, and as I said earlier, there's a lot of dialogue and uh, the uneven structure of the poem could present the narrative more smoothly for readers but um, the breaks between stanzas are also important in that regard I think because they help with the poem's pacing. Um and something I noticed about each stanza was that each stanza focused on a different action that God was taking. So um, to summarize the entire poem, basically what's going on is uh, it's a retelling of the biblical creation man, I believe, Um, but it uses the conceit of a pulley, but that's not really something you fully understand until you read the entire poem. And so, with each stanza focusing on a different action that God is taking, the first one focuses on God pouring, uh, thinking of pouring blessings into man, um, which is what he does in the second stanza, but he starts to sort of hesitate. And then the third stanza is him explaining that the reason he's hesitating is because if he were to pour all the blessings into man, that man would become satisfied with earthly life, and he wouldn't necessarily gain the satisfaction that God provides in his life, so both he and God would lose something in that exchange. Um, and then the fourth stanza is God deciding to bestow all of the blessings upon man anyways, but also to keep him restless so that even if he, um, even if he isn't, even if he wants goodness, um, he'll be restless enough to search for a higher degree of satisfaction than life can provide. That will eventually lead him back to God, which is similar to a pulley system. And so I think that the, um, the way that each stanza is presented and the breaks between stanzas helps to indicate that. Each stanza is a different action being taken. Is there anything anyone wanted to add? I can uh, elaborate a little bit more on the pulley as well. So something that I noticed about, um, like I said earlier, there's the conceit of the pulley, and that's not really something that's entirely noticeable when you first read the poem until you get to the very end. Because um, the whole... The, the whole poem, essentially what's going on in the poem is um, God is pouring uh, the blessings into man and the blessings are sort of visualized as these liquid treasures and by doing that he's metaphorically making man heavier um, by giving him all of these blessings and then he's casting him down but he's also making it he's also making a way for himself to be able to pull man back up to where he started um, by making him restless. So I think that by doing that, he is uh, Herbert is conveying how um, the relationship between God and man is ultimately the highest degree of satisfaction that a person can get from life. And it also sort of characterizes that God having, uh, he says he, uh, that God has a glass of blessing standing by, which uh, indicates how much power God has. And I think that also feeds into how both of them, to some extent, depend upon each other which is why the pulley system works, but it's it's a very complicated relationship because if man wasn't restless, he would he wouldn't go as far as to seek out greater happiness in finding God. That's really
0: interesting. I didn't even notice that in the poem.
2: Yeah, when I was reading the pulley, I had like a very hard time picking out like the consistency Because I know it's there, obviously, because of the title. But it was, like, it was harder to pick out than, like, what I chose for my poem, um, which was the flea. So that was interesting how you could, like, dissect that.
1: I think that the language in this poem is, uh, well, not necessarily necessarily the language, but the syntax is definitely complex. And uh, I think that the way it's organized definitely contributes to that. So, yeah, the conceit is... Very hard to pick out because of the way it's presented, but after you notice it, the poem I feel like the poem gains a lot
0: more meaning. I can see where I can see that. Have you looked at metaphors and things in your poem? Um, I mean, there's not really much to. I mean, other than
1: like the main conceit of the. Well, okay, something I did notice in regards to metaphors. Um, there is the glass of blessings, which is really. Oh no, wait. There, There's the way that um, the blessings are referred to as jewels and things of that nature. Um, and also the fact that they're poured into the man. The man is sort of represented as being the container for the blessings. Um, and I found that interesting because, uh, like I said, the metaphors sort of feed into the greater conceit. But when you first read the poem, that's not really something that you notice because um, the the um, glass of blessings and the imagery and the figurative language that are associated with it are the first thing that are um, that are conveyed by uh, Herbert. So I think that because of the way it's presented, um, the Conceit as a whole is a larger metaphor for the relationship between God and man, but um, there's a lot of smaller metaphors that are interspersed throughout it that help make that clear. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that does. Okay. Is there anything else anybody do you want to add to that poem? Jocelyn, do you want to talk about your poem next? Yeah.
2: So I chose, I chose the "Flee" as my poem, and this one was also. Um, a metaphysical poem and I chose this one as my winner because of how well executed the conceit was in it so I'll talk about the conceit of it because I don't know if you guys have read over it or anything but um, basically they used the flea as an analogy and logical reason to justify premarital sex between the speaker and his audience which is a woman which she isn't really spoken about during the poem and I'll get to that later. Um, But basically the flea is used as like a metaphor for a sexual relationship. And this conceit was really interesting because of the way it was used. Generally speaking, a person would not use an analogy of the mixing of blood in a flea to attempt to get someone to sleep with them. Um, So it was almost like ridiculous and a little bit far fetched in nature. And so the conceit, paints the speaker in somewhat of like a juvenile and desperate light. So I thought that the use of this conceit was very important into creating meaning behind the poem as a whole. Um, and one other really important thing that I found in this poem was the structure and organization of it. I found that it was particularly unique because each stanza seemed to serve its like own unique purpose in the speaker's presentation to this woman when he's trying to convince her to sleep with him so the first stanza kind of introduces the conceit and what the speaker wants without stating anything about the woman but it can be inferred that she's someone who the speaker seems to regard as like old-fashioned in her standards in this case he's focusing on her opposition to premarital sex and then the second stanza seems to be like a response to the woman's reaction to the first stanza so even though the um author doesn't even write about the woman and her responses you can like tell what it is because of the next sentence on the second stanza so the second stanza says oh stay three lives in one flea spare so we can infer basically that she came to the conclusion that she could just kill the flea because Of what the speaker says next. So she obviously wasn't impressed. Or convinced by the speaker's. Extended flea metaphor to intimacy. Um, And after. She kind of reacts to that. It seems to like offset him a little bit. Because he scrambles. To find like a more solid idea. To convince her about like. His whole flea metaphor. And he says. Where we almost. Nay more than married are. Meaning she can't kill the fly. Because the fly the flea because the flea has bonded them in a way more powerful than marriage and he even goes as far as to claim that killing the flea is like killing him and herself because they're living within a flea so obviously these claims are very radical and seem to be like wildly plucked from the speaker's brain in a desperate attempt to like persuade this woman to do what he wants and then the final stanza is yet again a response to the actions of the woman which aren't stated again um and She does end up killing the flea because he talks about her purple nail with the blood of the flea on it. And the speaker doesn't give up after she kills the flea. He just uses kind of a different reason of why she should agree with him. And he uses the justification that since she was able to kill the flea, yielding to him is just as harmless. So I felt that the way these stanzas were organized created like almost a snowballing effect of the buildup and... in the ridiculous and radical nature of the claims being made by the speaker and so it kind of highlighted the desperate and like juvenile attitude of the speaker and in addition to that it's the diction that he chooses to use to speak about the flea like the connotation of the words are very interesting he when the woman kills the flea, he talks about sin and sacrilege and blood of innocence, describing the woman's action as cruel and sudden. So when put into perspective, it's strange to talk about a flea in this manner because it's a flea. Um, but this just further highlights like the almost like desperate nature of him trying to connect two things that are completely unrelated in order to get what he wants from her. So if we look at the definition of a conceit, I thought that it was executed very well in this poem because it's an elaborate and surprising figure of speech comparing two very dissimilar things. So, when you think about a flea and like intimacy, you don't like those aren't related at all. You would never think of that unless you read this poem first. So, I thought that it was a very witty poem and it cleverly tied together two completely different things to make a convincing argument or claim
3: yeah i thought this guy was kind of crazy yeah
0: that is a really interesting idea that fleas are used to blow a woman into sex with them like
2: yeah it was a really strange poem and at first i was like very weirded out by it but it was very clever and if you think about it more as, like, ridiculous than serious, it's not as, like, bad. Or, like, it doesn't sit with you as weird.
0: Yeah. I can see that. Like, it kind of makes me want to yeah. laugh a little because it's, it's like... It's, like,
2: so ridiculous and out there.
0: Yeah. You would think that people, like, I don't know, at least in that time period, I think they were more serious about how these kind of things and trying to... Uh, get the best outcome so
1: I didn't even pick up on the um, well I picked up on the sexual imagery but I didn't really uh, connect that with the um, fact that it was about premarital sex but that does make a lot of sense with um, how the speaker uh, refers to their blood mixing and how they're supposedly closer than marriage because their blood is mixing inside of the flea Um, Something I noticed, and I'm not really sure if this is uh, significant detail or not, but um, the speaker seems to put a lot of, he seems to put at least some importance on the life of the flea as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Like he refers to the three of them rather than himself and uh, the woman he's trying to seduce. So I was wondering, would that perhaps be a metaphor for something?
2: I honestly don't know. I just took it as more of, like, him completely being, like, engulfed by this idea that he has to connect, like, the flea to what he's talking about. So I just took it as him, like, taking everything to, like, a whole nother level. That makes
3: sense. Uh, So my poem was The Passionate Shepherd to His Love, written by Christopher Marlowe, published in fifteen ninety nine, which coincidentally was five years after he was killed in a bar fight. Interesting. Um so I chose this poem to be my winner because of its structure and its use of imagery. I found those to be the most prominent parts of it which, which in a way is important to me. Uh, it's six stanzas. Each stanza is like broken off and in a unique way that creates acceleration throughout the poem. Uh, while reading this, it felt like something said by Romeo to Juliet, uh, due to its rhyme uh the passion, the passionate tone, and the acceleration, like I said before. Uh, I felt that each stanza had vivid imagery describing the authors surrounding nature to the gifts offered to his love, because throughout he's just describing nature, he's, he's describing a rural, a rural setting like mountainous fields uh, and stuff like that. And then he's just describing like, gifts to a gift or him. I don't know what to Um, But the point of view also makes it unique to me because it reads like a letter, which makes it feel like an artifact of the past. Uh, the poem is not addressed to one specific person or a universal theme like many Carthaginian poems would be. Uh, it's simply just a shepherd's food love it has no real string attached. i felt uh the simplicity of the poem i felt makes it unique like i said it's just very surface level it's not dwelling on any spiritual like many cardadian poems like most cardadian poems would be like see the day or live in the moment this is just some guy talking to a person in love over uh, a letter seems like an ordinary love letter uh it fits into the criteria of a pastoral lyric because it, it idealizes rural life like it talks like i said it talks about fields and everything you find a shepherd's roaming it's uh and that also helps it create a tone of tranquility uh it uses like it has a tone of tranquility and passion those two make up the entire of the poem uh, it, create that tone of tranquility it uses peaceful fiction uh many words throughout which create either like a sense of peace or something it's not strapping. but it's like peaceful or it's something you find maybe in a cottage or out in the field uh these words contain or are like some words like melodious fragrant coral amber May morning and delight. it's just like flowers, and it, it's, you'd think of a sunny day in the field, with those types of words. Um, and then the tone of passion, like I said, the speed and gravity of his words, like the continual use of love throughout his love, like my love, love, and he just keeps repeating it throughout every santa. It allows passion to be attributed uh, to the poem, and Christopher Marlowe uh, was an atheist, and finding... Like, in most poems throughout the entire unit, you probably find some allusion to a or a Christ or any, anything like that. But there's none at all in this, any that I could find at least, which I, I found it interesting because that's what makes it really unique from everything else. And then I found one really notable allusion. Uh, he talked about birds singing mardigals in the field. Uh, this alludes to the renaissance, and it's music, it's, it's a type of music where it's like many, it's from two to eight voices just connecting together to make a melody, uh, which also helps further my idea of the poem's tranquility. And overall, I just found the poem to be the easiest to understand, to me at least. It's nothing like the tiger or the flea, it's uh, make my brain become a pretzel to be most peaceful, uh, as well. I just really enjoyed reading it, and really very narrow.
1: It's a really interesting analysis, um, and, uh, something that you noted was that, um, it's a lyrical poem, I think it's what you said, a pastoral l- lyrical poem. Um, yeah. something that, uh, I found when I was looking at the structure of this poem was that it's written in, um, iambic tetrameter, I think, which means that it follows uh one two meter in syllable weight. And um I thought that because of that and the A A B B rhyme scheme, um, as well as the subject matter, um, I think those are all uh things that contribute to um the lyrical qualities of it. It's
0: almost song like, I think, in a way. Yeah. I think all the Carpe Diem poems were really interesting. I I think I compared that poem to, uh, to the virgins to make much of time. So,
1: I really like all the imagery used in this poem as well. Um, and uh, another small note that I took, uh, notice of was um. A lot of the things, a lot of the gifts that he mentions, uh, that he's going to give to his lover, um sort of relate back to um, the countryside and the prairie. Um, Like you mentioned, the madrigals. um, He also says that he'll make her beds of roses and a kirtle that's embroidered with all leaves of myrtle. Um, And both of those are plants that represent love and romantic connection. And then there's also references to lambs and other shepherds which indicates some degree of biblical purity, I think. So I think those are all uh, things that he uses to characterize the qualities of life um, in an agrarian setting. And I think he's, by giving those things to his lover physically, he's sort of um, demonstrating the fruitfulness that living alongside him in the prairie will bring. Uh, Yeah,
3: exactly. The
0: was there anything else you want you guys want to add to that? Uh, for my poem it was Dulcea decorum est which was written by Wilfred Owens in nineteen seventeen uh so during this uh during this time period, it was modernist era or age of realism, and so there was a push towards literature having been grounded in reality and one of the major influences was world war one and so there was m- er, many propaganda that took place during World War One which skewed perspectives and uh as Wilford was a british uh poet and he was really uh oh, his poems came. Uh, was published in the newspapers and most of his poems were published after he died. So looking at this, uh, it was told from the viewpoint of a soldier and it explores the reality of World War I and uh, how Wilfred Owens uh, and his fellow uh, soldiers faced gas attacks. And so the triadal actually translates to it's sweet and fitting. Uh, And it's not really completed. The title just... uh, it's just the fun part of the phrase of that title. And so the, this was kind of the poem was about soldiers dying for their country and the stigma that dying for one's country is the best thing to do. And that's part of that nationalist feeling that was really prominent during that time. And it's when more propaganda was shown to get more people to participate to the cause of their countries because there were five allies who... They all had their own agendas and their own reasons for doing it. And so it was a message about how the propaganda is really false and it's not as great as people portray it to be and it's that it's just really saying just it's to die because there there's just no suffering uh, no end to the sufferings that the soldiers face and you kinda see people die, close friends and it plagues and hunts him in his sleep. And the poem's really just exploring the grotesque details that happens when someone dies of gas poisoning. And the use of imagery was very prominent. I believe that it brought the literary moment about The reality into the poem and so that's what the imagery really kind of signified and in fact I think throughout the poem there was this use of extended metaphors such as uh, but someone still was yelling out and stumbling and floundering like a man in fire or lime dim through the misty paints and thick green light so as uh, under a green sea I saw him drawing it was kind of comparing a gruesome experience to a sour fruit and it showed it was how it was experiences that just left behind a sovereignness behind and I think uh it was one of the most important element in this poem uh is also a structure and the structure of the poem is a uh, kind of like a sonnet it has a rhythm that you kind of find uh, in the beginning with the use of commas and how the brief each phrase is and uh I think the poem is around 28 lines. So that's kind of twice the length of the sonnet. And it, but I believe that was done on purpose because it was a ch- way of changing from what uh, poems are traditionally written into this new form of poems that, uh, that could be. And uh, his poems really did push uh, many people into the modern era and modern era. So, and if you look further into the poem, there's the stanzas create a sense of quickening of pace. So from between the first stanza and the second stanza, you can really see how faster the things are getting and how, or the events are really progressing really, really quickly. And that in that brief moment, it's only little bits of things that's really like a crescendo, a climax is appearing in stanza too so by the end of it it's kind of uh over and then the next stanza is really just two lines and it's just a reflection of what happened and it was telling him about, about how Wilfred Owens felt the guilt it that was plaguing him in addition there was also uses of m dashes which kind of emphasized the middle which emphasized certain details and it was only used in the middle and the end of the poem and so it was kind of uh the poem was really conveying the lesson he had learned and it's parting to people reading the poem as a warning for future generation that not everything is really as great as it seems and so and he kind of ends it with uh Dulce et decorum pro patria mori, which is means it's sweet and fitting to die for your country. So the poem started with one half of this phrase and ended with the whole Latin phrase that was uh, written by uh, Horace. And what's really interesting is that he writes this in the uh, trenches in France during World War One, and so and. He just dies one week before the armistice in November 11th. So in reality, his poem kind of was saying how his mentality towards the war and what he felt he was doing, and how it in the beginning it was all about being patriotic, and now it's just how it's just suffering, and there's really nothing really great about dying in those gas fields. No honor. So, did anyone uh, think anything about the poem? Oh, good.
3: All right. Well, I thought the, it kind of connects. When we uh, did those song analysis, really really we talked about Born in the USA. It connects in a small way to that song, I felt. Um, that's, that's my
0: that is really interesting. I didn't even realize that. <laughs>
1: a really good point. Um, and yeah, I think that uh, the message that it presents about how um, people shouldn't romanticize, especially war, people shouldn't romanticize uh, things that they don't really fully understand, um, is one that's uh, very relevant to um, just the content of the poem in general. And it's presented Very clearly. Um, And I find it interesting that he refers to um, Horace's lines as an old lie because they're not something that can be taken at face value anymore in the context of World War One. And something else that I noticed, uh, Reba, you were talking about the poem's structure and um, I completely agree with all of your points. Um, and something that I noticed is that, uh, like you mentioned, the breaks between the stanzas um, do uh, increase the pace as um, the poem goes on. Um, I thought that they also added to the sense of discord that, um, that uh, characterizes wartime. Um, and especially in that combined with the descriptions of what's going on with the first stanza... Um, focusing on soldiers just sort of marching through life with, like, complete lifelessness, um, from their experiences in the war zone to the immediate shift in the second stanza, um, which is just so much more urgent and terrifying and desperate. Um, and the shorter stanzas that are, like, one or two lines being a lot more reflective, um, referring to how haunted, um the speaker is from his experiences and from watching
2: these soldiers die. It is really true. Something that stood out to me when I read over this poem because I don't think I read this one while I was like doing my own bracket. But when I read it, um the connotation of the words, like the word choice was very like it felt like they almost like the words like bit at you. Um just like the choice of words um, Like, drunk with fatigue, floundering, stumbling, um, guttering, choking, drowning, smothering, white eyes breathing, um, devil sick of sin. Like, everything was so um, harsh, I think. And I felt like that really emphasized what the speaker was trying to get across about war.
0: Yeah, there was a really steadfast yeah, – I felt like the diction was kind of like – unwavering it didn't change like everything is grounded like there is no point in criticizing or critiquing whatever he says so
2: yeah
1: I thought originally that um oh sorry were you gonna say something
0: no I wasn't okay
1: um I thought originally uh I I totally agree Jocelyn and um I thought originally with the amount of like vivid visceral imagery that's present Uh, In the poem, I thought that um, it sort of reflected how clear those events still are in his mind. Um, Like he mentions that he's haunted by them, but I think that the fact that he can visualize how horrible um, and all of the violence and all of the gore and awful things that he saw and experienced were um, really cements the fact that um, war isn't
0: something that should be glorified. What's also interesting about this uh, poem was what I found really interesting was that uh, the poem is kind of written in a phase of time where propaganda really took place, as I mentioned earlier. And it was like the governments were really censoring what was written about that war because they were kind of losing uh people's uh uh support in the war so this kind of like poem that's being uh published at that time was kind of odd and it i don't think many governments would have read their let their citizens even read about the poem so that's a really insightful point. I didn't even consider that, but that does make a lot of sense. Was there anything else anybody wanted to add about this poem or some other poems? If any last
3: remarks? Uh, I found the use Latin, so you don't really see that. You, know, free, like, you don't really see that after
1: the 1800s. Yeah. That's a really good point.
0: Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed.